is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Election Day just six days away. Many voters here in Los Angeles still figuring out who they want for mayor. Karen Bass, Rick Caruso have been campaigning nonstop lately as they approach the finish line. One stop for Mr. Caruso is right here at KNX. He's with us today in studio, and we will be talking to him in just a moment about why undecided voters should choose him. Governor Newsom slamming his own party ahead of Election Day. We're going to look at whether his criticisms are valid. We'll take a look today at Prop 27. That's the second gambling initiative on the state ballot. CVS and Walgreens tentatively settled some huge lawsuits related to the opioid crisis. And walking your dog just got easier, even if you don't have the time. We're going to explain a brand new exercise service. The question being, if you don't have the time yeah. to walk your dog, right. maybe you shouldn't have a dog. But okay, I, you know, I was thinking <laughs> that, but you said it out loud. Yeah, I'll get the nasty emails, but there it is. We start though with uh, the L.A. mayor's race. With us in studio is Rick Caruso. It's his first time back with us since uh, our big uh, mayor debate early last month. And let me point out, and we will a number of times, that we did reach out to uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass's campaign to invite her to join us in studio this week, as we did with uh, Mr. Caruso. We have not yet uh, gotten a response from that invitation, but it's still extended anytime she would like before Election Day this week anyway. Mr. Caruso, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Charles. Let me start off, uh, because it's interesting. I went back and I looked over the answers from the three debates that you were in with uh, Congresswoman Bass. And there does seem to be a a kind of contradiction to one of your arguments for why people should vote for you for mayor. On the one hand, you point to Bass and you say she's, I'm paraphrasing you, but I think at one point you said she's part of a kind of a corrupt system. Uh, Yet, you also acknowledge that she's never actually played a role in city government. You, on the other hand, are portraying yourself at the same time that you're an outsider, you also like to boast about all the things you have done for the city of Los Angeles at the behest of, what, three different mayors. So which is it? Are you the outsider who wants to get things shaped up and run the proper way, or are you the very experienced insider who is going to bring that to the table? You can't be both. Oh, I disagree. I think you can be. Can be both? Because I am. Okay. So, listen, I did serve under Tom Bradley. I served under Dick Reardon, and I served under Jim Hahn. The last time I had official capacity with this city was under Jim Hahn as the president of the police commission. That was 20 years ago. Karen Bass, she is currently a member of Congress. She has represented the city of Los Angeles for 20 years. And under her reign as an elected official, homelessness has gone up 80%. And she has never introduced one time a bill to cure, fix, whatever on homelessness. So, but, but yeah, but I want to. But because you've got you've gone down this road before, and and I know, but I want to pin you on this. Go ahead. Are are you? You say you can be both an insider and an outsider. I don't know how that can be, but okay. Uh, so, which part of you, if you win, is going to be at City Hall? Is it going to be the experienced insider, Rick Caruso, or is it going to be 
the outsider, Rick Caruso, who now gets a chance to show the city how it can be properly done? Which one? Well, again, it's going to be both because I bring all of my experiences to bear as mayor. And that's really the great advantage that I have as being the mayor of this city. I started my business in Los Angeles with one employee, and over the last 35 years, I built it up, created thousands of jobs along the way. I have an independent view of how government works from the inside and from the outside. That's the advantage that I have. But again, when I was serving mayors, we did not have a system that was broken like we have today. We did not have the corruption that we have today. I've never been involved in a corruption scandal, never any hint of one. But this is a chief executive job to be the mayor. You're managing 80,000 employees, 50 departments, an $11 billion budget. You need to have executive skills. But you also need to have an understanding how to get things done in the city, which I do because I was part of a system that actually at the time was working very well. Uh, Mr. Caruso, I wanted to ask you because – Because here we are, we're just a few days out from the election, and it's been a long campaign, and uh, you have campaigned uh, very hard, so has uh, Congresswoman Bass. Uh, But we're just a few days out, and there are still people who have made up their minds. Even though a lot of us have, a lot of us have voted already, there are some of us who, who are just waiting to see. And I have heard people come up to me and say, you know what? Honestly, when I think about it, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference who wins. So obviously, I know that you're not going to agree with that assessment. But what can you tell us that you haven't already gone over after this long campaign ad nauseum? Uh, Is there something new? Is there some closing argument you can offer to those people who, A, say they haven't made up their minds yet, and B, they don't really care who wins? Well, you know what I would say is there's never been a time that I can remember in my 63 years of my life living in Los Angeles that an election has been so critical. And I think there's a clarity to it and there's a distinct choice, which is great. Two very different candidates with very different life experiences, you know, putting themselves out there and working hard for every vote. But this is do you want more of the same or do you want to change? And I am the change agent. And I believe, Los Angeles, we've got to change things in order to reduce the homelessness and reduce crime and end the corruption that we've seen in the city. And uh, I would say to everybody, your vote is your voice. And now more than ever, everybody needs to get out there and, uh, and vote. We've made it as easy as possible to do that with ballots in everybody's mailboxes. But this is a critical time in the city of Los Angeles, so we can make a lot of great change now. You know, next week, other than, of course, the race here, a lot of important races all across the country. And the polls, if they're accurate, would indicate uh, Republicans may very well take over the House and possibly the Senate as well. As you know, uh, your opponent uh, makes a big point of the fact that she has been, as she puts it, a lifelong Democrat, uh, whereas you are more recent to the party. So I'm curious, next week, which group would you find more comfortable with? Would you be more comfortable if the Democrats maintain control of the House and Senate or if the Republicans do? Well, I'm a Democrat and I was I'm supporting the Democratic candidates. But as mayor, I'm going to work with anybody. My focus is going to be what's in the best interest of Los Angeles, what's in the best interest of Angelinos. And we've got to make a lot of progress here. And I'm going to fight for the city. So it doesn't matter to me. I'm used to working with everybody. 
I built my business in finding common ground. I'm going to do that as the mayor of Los Angeles. But I haven't, frankly, been spending too much time on the national election because, you know, obviously my focus is what's happening locally. And we've got some very important local races besides the mayor's office that people really need to focus on. But, you know, you're astute enough to know why I asked that question. I asked that question because the congresswoman is painting you as basically a phony Democrat. Uh, And there are some people out there who do still think that they think that. You became a Democrat because you're an opportunist, and this was something that you felt needed to be done to win in a mostly Democratic city. And they wonder, if you lost the race, would you go back to being a Republican? Would you? No. And I left the Republican Party years and years and years ago. It had nothing to do with running for mayor. It had to do with the value system. It had to do with the fact that I'm fiscally conservative and I'm socially liberal. The Republican Party has been doing things, and I'm glad I left it. And so here I am as a proud Democrat, and I'm going to remain a proud Democrat. But the party that I love has a big tent, and I'm going to welcome everybody. If they joined yesterday or if they joined 20 years ago, it doesn't matter. You've made a choice. I've made a choice, and I'm proud of it. You know, that leads me to a question I've been wanting to ask you uh, for a long time before we had the opportunity to sit down here today. Uh, because of the fact that uh, you say, you explain, the Republican Party kind of left you a long time ago. And uh, I can certainly understand that position because there are a lot of Republicans who are saying the same thing. Uh, we've seen the rise of a very far right wing of the party and some moderate Republicans feel kind of left in the middle of the water. Many of them just got out of government completely rather than rather than try to uh, stay in and lose elections. They just got up because they saw the way it was going. So we see the way it's going nationally. Now, the contest between you and Congresswoman Bass has not been quite so volatile. I mean, you you two have butted heads quite a bit because you have some differences. But it hasn't been that kind of crazy, like uh, one side accusing the other of being part of a satanic cabal, et cetera, et cetera. So if you win and you become mayor of the second largest city in the country, uh, what can you tell us that you'll do to, uh, yes, you're going to focus on Los Angeles, but what will you do to help focus on the political divide that's becoming not just divisive but, but dangerous and, and violent? You know, your point is so well taken, and it scares me. My wife and I were talking about it last night at dinner. You have to bring people together, but you got to lead by example. you got to include everybody. My government's going to reflect this great city. Uh, you know, we have populations in this city that have not been heard the Latino community, the AAPI community. Uh, We have hate crimes rising in this city. The Jewish community has been overly impacted by that also. And I'm going to lead by example. And I'm going to do what I did, frankly, when I became the president of the police commission after a very rough time after the Rodney King beatings of going out, meeting people, having listening sessions, bringing communities together, and actually taking action that they see that they're represented and they're heard. And I'm excited about doing that because I know how to do it and I enjoy doing it. Talking about the debates, uh, Mr. Caruso, let me go back to a couple of things and see if we can kind of dot the I's and cross the T's that came up in the debate. One has to do with, because of your financial situation, frankly, tax returns. You keep pointing to Congresswoman Bass and you're saying that she's not leveling with people about her USC application. Her campaign looks to you and they say things like, well, where's his tax returns? Why don't we see his tax returns that other candidates for this office have disclosed? Uh, So why not? 
was asked to disclose what I pay in taxes. That's not the same thing as your tax returns. No, but that's you know what I that. was asked to do. Okay, so now, all right, well, let me let me ask you well, that. Hold on, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to ask it. Will you wait a minute? Will you, before election day, release your actual tax returns for say the past two years? I, I've already released all the information everybody needs to know. That's not. That's not either a yes or no. No, because I've done yeah. what I've been asked to do uh, every step of the way. And, but why, but why numbers, not? Those numbers are audited. But why not? You can imagine the complexity yes. of those returns. And what I was asked to do early on in the first debate, tell us what you pay in taxes, which is hundreds of millions of dollars. But you know, yes, but you know, and I'm not doubting that, but you know as well as I do that, that because of what you just said, you have such a complex financial arrangement. How can you really assure Angelinos? That if you become mayor, your administration is going to be on the up and up when they don't really have a good sense of where your money is coming from, where your money is going, who your business partners are. You're in big time real estate. You know, who are you in bed with, so to speak, in real estate? They don't get that from just you saying this is how much money I've paid in taxes. And you know that. I think they do deserve that. That's why there's a Form 700. And I filled out the form. But that's not your tax return. No, no, no. But the tax returns don't say who I do business with. No, but the it gives you a better idea. No, it doesn't. Sure, it no, does. No, yeah, it, it does. Will show income. It, the form seven hundred is probably the largest form seven hundred ever yeah. filed in the city of Los Angeles, and it shows every source of income, every person I do business with, every entity that I own and control, every stock that I own, and people should look at the seven. The so, okay, so if if your actual tax returns then are that inconsequential because you've you've submitted so much stuff, then why not just add one more piece of paper to the pile and release the tax returns? What's the big because deal? The information for people to make a decision is out there, Charles. Uh-huh. It's been out there. And by the way, nobody has been asking me until right now to issue tax returns because I gave them the tax information. The form seven hundred shows every detail of my life. And I really think people should take a look at it because it's an open book. So would you say that to a potential voter who would say, yes, I know all that, but I still want to see your tax returns. And they would accuse you of, well, you're not being completely transparent. Well, of course I am, though. That's what the the, the Form 700 is a legally required document that has to be complied with, which I've done. But listen, you also put the question in context of Karen Bass showing her application to USC. You asked a question at the debate. Will you show us your application to USC and your scholarship? And she said, yes, she will. She never has. She needs to come true and show it. The problem is she's not being honest because there is no application. Otherwise, she would have produced one. She produced a one-page unsigned application to sit in a class And I think that's insulting to the voters of Los Angeles and, frankly, to you, Charles, because it's not being true. And she should have transparency. And I should point out, again, that we've asked her to come on the show and help clear up some of this. And and we have asked her uh, to follow up on that point about what she did end up releasing. And uh, we have not gotten a further uh, explanation from her. Uh, There was another point that uh, I asked you during our debate about uh, your blind trust. And you said that you would match what Governor Newsom did in his blind trust. Uh, and I also went further and said something along the lines of, 
would you go above and beyond whatever the minimum standards might be legally just to assure people that that they don't have to worry about your financial entanglements. And I don't use the word entanglements, by the way, in any pejorative sense. Um, so, again, can you give us a very, uh, very concise, clear answer on how your blind trust is going to be structured or is structured now? Well, it complies with the law of the state of California, and it's what best practices are in the state of California. I'm going to certainly do that. But I've also told you to your question offline, that I will go above and beyond because I don't want anybody to ever worry about what I'm doing. So I'm, how are you doing that? That's my question. How are you going above and beyond? Well, listen, complete control goes to an independent trustee, whether they sell the company, move the company, do it. Who's I have, the independent trustee? I haven't named the independent trustee, but it's probably going to be Corrine Verdere, who is now CEO. Of your company? Of the company. Why not take somebody who has nothing to do with Caruso? Because you need to have somebody understand the company, right, to make a good decision. Um, and Corrine is a very smart, good executive, and she's going to make the right decisions. But I'm not even involved in decisions now of what's going on. All I care about is focusing on the city of Los Angeles. And so if there's other things that I can do to assure people that there's no conflict, I will do it. But remember, I've served three mayors. There's never been any issue about whether or not any decision I made as a commissioner since I was 26 years old has anything to do with being an ethical let me ask clean you, record. Let me ask you a follow-up, though, kind of related to that. If you're mayor, you get to appoint uh, people on the planning commission, right? Correct. Yeah. And the people on the planning commission, correct me if I'm wrong, get to make all the decisions, or a lot of the decisions anyway, about big projects in the city. Am I correct? That's correct. All right. Because of the potential, even appearance, of a conflict, if not while you're in office, perhaps at some point if you win, when you're no longer mayor, would you recuse yourself from selecting the members of the Planning Commission? Well, actually, what I think would be better, and, and the commissioners are then approved by the city council, yeah, no, I so it's not yeah. just by the mayor. But would you so, accuse yourself in the process? I think what's smarter is what I've said, I will not build a project in the city of Los Angeles. So we will never put anybody in the city of Los Angeles in that kind of awkward position. I wanted to ask you, I know that, that you intend to win because you don't, this is not a game you play to lose. You play this to win, but you know that there is a chance that you could lose because only one person can win. If you do lose, uh, what are your plans? Do you plan to go back to your business uh, and, and leave politics completely behind? Or uh, what will you focus on to address some of the issues that you have brought up in the campaign? back to the business as the CEO and run the company. I've made a commitment to Corrine, who's the new CEO, that uh, she's got, you know, a long-term job. And you can't hire somebody who's really, really good unless you give them that kind of commitment. So it was never intended to be temporary. And I have incredible amount of faith in her and my executive team at the company. What I plan on doing uh, is not running for office again. This is going to be a one-time thing for me. I've been very clear I don't look to have a career in politics. Um, and I'll continue to be involved in the charities that we've supported, like Operation Progress and Paro Los Ninos and, you know, supporting the families in uh, East L.A. and South L.A. that are at and below the poverty line. 
and obviously being uh, would, would know, that include uh, some of the homeless issues you brought up because that is one of the major issues yeah. uh, facing the city and there are some ideas that you brought up you would be able to carry out some of those ideas because of the the wealth that you have even without being in office you could do that what what would you do if if you do lose you know the the money that Tina and I have given you know well over about 150 million dollars so far is really targeted to those that are at or below the poverty line families to prevent them from becoming homeless, which is incredibly important also. But listen, I'm I'm in love with L.A., so uh, I'm going to always help any way I can in Los Angeles. But I really have enjoyed and I think it's very impactful to help the youth and giving them education and the right health care and making sure that they uh, have their fair share of the American dream. So I'll continue to do that as mayor. I'll continue to do it when I'm not mayor. Uh, It's a passion and a commitment of mine. You know, it's interesting that you say that that if you lost, you wouldn't run again for some office. So you didn't get that sort of, I don't know, that that taste for – you know, most people who run for office, they kind of start salivating about, <laughs> you know, the mere thought of looking at another ballot. They go, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll run for that office. Yeah. You really can walk away from it if you don't win and not actually decide to run for something else in either the state or some other level. Yeah. I mean, we were just talking. I salivate thinking about Langer's. We were just talking about <laughs> Langer's pastrami sandwiches yeah, we were. when we were off the air. Yeah, we were. No, this was this this was very clear. And I've, I've said it. Maybe people don't believe it because people don't believe people that are in politics or a candidate. I'm doing this one time. I want to go work for my city. And then I'm going to go back to private life. And what, uh, what if you win? What if you uh, after you win and and you're let's say you don't run for another term. Uh, you leave that term, or once you're termed out, uh, what will you do Same after thing. you win? This is Same a thing. capstone of my life, and how blessed am I that I've got an opportunity to do this, work really hard to change the trajectory of the city and make it more livable, um, and then go back to private life. I just find that to be a, a great way to cap off my career. You know, I, I know a lot of people, especially nowadays because of the political, politicalization uh, and the uh, uh, amount of animus that exists around the country uh, toward politicians and politics. I think everybody or a lot of people think that everybody in politics must hate everybody else in politics. Hmm. Um, I know that you and, and Congresswoman Bass know each other a long time. Just to set the record, uh, you like each other, don't you? We've known each other for a long time and we like each other. Listen, I've been disappointed in Karen in the tone and the words that she's used. And, you know, she's got a, this Washington-based pact that's financing things. Uh, I think it's been very unfair. Um, it's bothered my family, you know, in spreading lies. Uh, we, I have not done that about Karen. I've talked about her record. And um, I think that's what really frustrates people in politics is they there's no standard of truth. And what she that's disappointed me about her. I think it's shown a side of her that I never knew. Uh, and it's been really wrong on her part. So could you work with her if she gets elected mayor and you do not? Listen, I have worked with every mayor of this city since Tom Bradley uh, because I love the city. And my love for the city transcends whoever is mayor. So I'm always going to help the city of Los Angeles. And uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But I'm always going to be here for the city. The city's been so good to me. Why not? Of course I would. And and what if uh, she wins and she invites you into 
her administration in some capacity, would you be willing to do that if you say you don't want to be in politics? I, I'm not I'm not looking for a job in city government from that standpoint. I think that, you know, I am much better used to go out uh, and help move bigger projects forward, um, help communities that, again, are at or below the poverty line. We've got communities in the city, and I'm going to be spending the rest of the day down in South L.A. and Watts, that are desperate. And I, I love that community, and I will continue to embrace them to the end of my life. Okay, you have been listening to uh, Rick Caruso, who is running for the office of mayor of the city of Los Angeles. Uh, as we have been saying since we started this broadcast, we have uh, innumerable times reached out to uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass to join us on this program between now and Election Day. Uh, we haven't heard back as yet. We hope to. Uh, in the meantime, if you haven't voted and you live in the city of Los Angeles or if you live at actually anywhere else, uh, go out and vote because that's the only way your voice gets to count. Mr. Caruso, thank you for being thank with you. us on KNX In-Depth. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Coming up later, two of the country's biggest pharmacy chains agree to settle some big lawsuits related to the opioid crisis. And a local clever businessman has found a way to walk your dog without leaving your driveway. Right now, though, Governor Newsom went on the attack during an interview with CBS News just ahead of Election Day. But it was directed against the Democrats. It goes to my fundamental grievance with my damn party. We're getting crushed on narrative. We're going to have to do better in terms of getting on the offense and stopping on the damn defense. Well, Newsom also acknowledged the midterm environment feels like a red wave. Does he have a point? And, you know, is he right? Steve Maviglio is a Democratic strategist here in California. Steve, welcome back to the show. Um, Wow. You know, listening to Governor Newsom, uh, it is the kind of thing that one normally hears a politician in one party say about the other party. It's a little, I I don't know, I guess disconcerting to hear a Democrat, especially uh, the ranks of the governor of California, slam his own party. Were you surprised? Yes and no. I mean, Will Rogers said it best. You know, he said he wasn't a member of any organized political party. He's a Democrat because <laughs> Democrats are all over the place all the time. And, you know, I, I hearken back to when I worked in the Clinton campaign way back in 1992, when James Carville put that sign on the wall and said, it's the economy, stupid. After Democrats were all over the map in that election, it's a constant problem Democrats have. Everybody has an opinion on what we should be saying and how. Believe me, this is poll tested to death. I understand the governor's frustration, but I don't think it's particularly helpful to him to lead any credence to a so-called red wave uh, on election eve. He should um, be out there stumping for these candidates in these swing districts instead of complaining about the message. Let me be cynical for a little bit and say that uh, is he you know, not knowing what's going to happen yet in 2024. Uh, some are assuming he's just positioning himself for a run for president. But is he also positioning himself to be uh, the de facto leader of the party? I think he's positioning himself to be saying, I told you so after the results come in, if it's not good for the Democrats and then to launch whatever he is going to launch from that. Um, you know, but different politicians of the party now are saying different things. President Obama was on the stump all we at last weekend and his line was who will fight for your freedom? Who's going to stand up to for reproductive light rights and same sex marriage and freedom of speech? Newsom has sort of a new uh, a, a nuanced version of that. There's other people that want us to go and hit the Republicans over the head 
and scare the heck out of voters by saying, you know, this is what the Republicans are doing on the Supreme Court and banning books and talking about banning birth control and banning abortion. And that should scare the hell out of people. Um, but that message doesn't seem to be working. And then there's others that still want us to talk about Donald Trump to resonate with our base. So, you know, there's a lot of different people, with a lot of different ideas. All politics is local. And, you know, but it all comes back to what voters want. They want a politician that will make their lives better and a plan to do that. And Democrats need to articulate that in a better way. Steve, you know uh, the political landscape in this state probably better than than most. Do you think he is, Newsom, going to run? Because despite his his kind of, I thought, uh, wishy-washy answer to uh, Major Garrett at CBS News, I kind of got the impression that he really does want to run. Well, you know, I don't know a politician who doesn't want to be president. He has said it in every possible conceivable way that he's not interested, but he'll continue to say that until he is. Right. So we have to see what the landscape looks like. I think if if the Democrats do really poorly, there's going to be more calls for Biden not to run again. There might be a primary challenge against him. Um, Newsom already is at 10 percent in the polls in New Hampshire, which isn't too shabby since considering he's never stepped foot there. So, you know, I I think the opportunities for him to be there, he's got a record to run on, he says, and uh, we'll have to see what happens. Would you tell him to do it? You know, there's, again, a lot of factors. If uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't run against the president in the primary and that he's got the problem of butting at butting up against the vice president, who is also from California and has a lot of support in the party. Um, you know, he still works virtual unknown across the country. So I think this is part of his foray into Texas and the Florida to put himself more in the water cooler talks about, well, who will run if Biden doesn't. All right. Let's let's look at the horse race for a second. Uh, let's say uh, Mr. Biden decides not to run for reelection in 2024. That leaves us with Vice President Kamala Harris, who is obviously would want to run for the position, we assume. And uh, Gavin Newsom, who we again assume would want to run for the position. Who has the better strategy? Who is laying the better groundwork right now to be that person who would come out on top? Is it Newsom or Harris? Well, you know, she has to play second fiddle to the president. That's what the vice president does. So we really haven't seen her, you know, be as aggressive as probably she wants to be out there. Um, but, you know, they, he will have a base in California. But, you, you know, the Democratic primaries consisted largely of progressive voters, uh, Bernie Sanders. God forbid, might make another attempt at this. There's Secretary Buttigieg who might make a run for it. Elizabeth Warren could possibly run for it again. There's a lot of retreads from the past, and there's a lot of young and up-and-comers, too. So it'll be a battle royale, trust me. And uh, I don't think anybody right now has the lock on it. And, of course, that all depends on what Mr. Biden decides to do. Uh, Steve uh, Vilio, Democratic strategist in California, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We are taking a look uh, all this week at some of the major statewide ballot measures. We discussed one of the two gambling props yesterday. That would have been uh, Prop 26. Today, we're going to take a look at Prop 27. So we advanced by one number. Yes, we're going up and we're going to until we reach what, 99? I have no idea, but we went. it's important. We went from 26. Now we're at 27. Yes. The state voter guide says it would allow Native American tribes and affiliated businesses to operate online and mobile sports betting outside of tribal lands. Now, back with us again is Kathy Fairbanks, who is with the uh, joint Yes on 26, but No on 27 campaign. 
And we have Mary Beth Moylan with the McGeorge School of Law at uh, University of the Pacific. She oversees a journal that's uh, kind of dedicated to California's initiatives, of which there are many. Uh, we did reach out multiple times to the yes on 27 side, but we never heard back. The uh, yes side does say some of the money generated if this passes will go toward homelessness programs. So uh, thank you both for joining us today. I want to address the first question to uh, Mary Beth uh, uh, Moylan with the uh, Yes on 26, but no on 27 campaign. Uh, what's the reason to go for this? And, and 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 bear in mind, there are a lot of people who are very confused about these issues. How can you boil it down and just make it as simple as possible? Okay, well, uh, you said Mary Beth, but then you said with the Yes on 26, Oh, I'm so no sorry. I see campaign. That's how confused I got. On this, uh, so I'm I'm talking to the yes on twenty six, no on twenty seven campaign. As you were pushing this idea, uh, uh, take a look at Prop twenty seven. You're saying no on twenty seven. Why? And and very simply, to someone who maybe doesn't understand all the ins and outs, why would they want to vote no on twenty seven? Thanks. Yes, uh, no on twenty seven. Um, as you mentioned, Prop twenty six is supported by tribes. Prop twenty seven is opposed by tribes. It was written by and for out-of-state corporations who want to legalize online sports betting in California. Prop 26 is the in-person sports betting. This Prop 27 is online. Out-of-state corporations drafted it for themselves. It's a massive expansion of gambling in California, and it would turn every online device, your phone, your laptop, your uh, tablet, gaming console, into a gambling device. And the corporations make out like bandits. 90% of the revenues immediately go out of state into their pockets. Of the 10% that is supposed to be left for California, the companies drafted in a number of loopholes into Prop 27, allowing them to make deductions from that 10% tax they're supposed to be paying and whittling it down to next to nothing. It's just a bad idea for California. It's not going to solve homelessness as the Yes on 27 campaign like to say. Um, it's bad for the state. It's bad for tribes. Thankfully, it looks like it will be defeated. It's failing miserably in the polls as it should. Voters are not fooled. Mary Beth, is Kathy right in what her assessment is? Um, well, I think Kathy has some of it. Right. Um, there are, of course, two sides to every story. I do agree that Proposition 27 is really complicated, and there are lots of ways in which um, money will be spent before it does go to homelessness. But the um, but the reality, too, I believe, and and if neither 26 nor 27 pass, we'll have another. Um, gaming initiative coming down the pike in 2024, in all likelihood, there have already been um, initiatives in circulation to legalize online sports betting. Um, and, and I guess I would just say that I don't, I, I think there are a lot of problems with 27. It is drafted in ways that are not um, to the benefit of the average Californian. Uh, and at some point, 30 uh, three states have already legalized online gambling and online sports betting. Many of them have done so through their initiative processes. And I, I do think at some point, California will need to figure this out. We're not going to be the only market that doesn't have some mechanism for legal 
Um, uh, okay, Mary Beth, uh, you are the neutral observer in this uh, issue because yes, on twenty-seven people, as you point out, did not get back to us in time. Uh, so, as a neutral observer. Could it be one of the reasons this this initiative appears to be going down to a big defeat is because it's complicated or because uh, voters just aren't ready for this kind of online gambling yet? Or which is it? I think it's a combination of things. There's more money being spent by both sides of this initiative than have ever been spent in any initiative in the past. So people are being really inundated with um, information on both sides of things. And I think they feel a little overwhelmed by that. I think it is also very complicated. It's a 63-page change to the law. It creates an entirely new division to regulate this area. So I think in part, people just don't know if it's a good thing or not. And that let, that generally uh, people tend to default to no when they don't feel like they fully understand a thing, which is appropriate. Um, so, yes, I think that there are a lot of things going on in the this, but the money is a big piece of it. And there, as I said, there's just been astronomical spending in the hundreds of millions of dollars on both sides of of both 26 and 27. That's an interesting point, Kathy. I mean, so much money, when when so much money is spent on anything, uh, let alone propositions, people, and perhaps understandably, start thinking, well, what are the the hidden agendas here? Uh, Whose vested interests are at play to spend all this amount of money just to get a vote in favor one way or the other. How much money has your side spent on this and, and where is it coming from? Uh, I, I don't off the top of my head have the exact amount. Ballpark. Raised, Ballpark. Prop 27 or our no campaign are, are, has been funded primarily by tribes. Our coalition, however, includes a number of community groups, homelessness advocate, homeless advocates, um, the NAACP, all these groups, more than 200 actually, oppose Proposition 27. Mary Beth is right that voters are confused. There's no question about that, um, especially one is in person, one is online. They're con- confused about which one the tribes support, which one the tribes oppose. The Yes on 27 campaign flooded the TV, you know, TV and digital with ads in July and August and September, confusing voters with misleading ads. Um, the other, so confusion is a huge part of it. The other component, though, is that voters are not supportive of online gambling. They just aren't. We know that from our internal polling, and we know it also from the most recent poll from the Public Policy Institute of California. Okay, uh, one quick uh, question because we're going to run out of time. But but Mary Beth, you weren't with us yesterday. Uh, Kathy will recognize this question, which is. You know, talking about the confusion that voters have, it almost seems as if these propositions, not just these, but others, are often written deliberately in a way that a voter is totally confused about what to vote for. Do you think that that's the case? Yes, I do. You do? (laughs) I mean, that's a short answer. But yes, I think that are that very often the propositions are drafted in ways that are not easy to access for the average voter. The attorney general's office tries to break it down and to summarize um, for a a ballot title and summary, but often those titles and summaries are also confusing uh, because they are trying to, um, you know, 
break, break down into very small bite-sized chunks what are sometimes very complex measures. And that's certainly the case here. Um, so to answer your prior question, I just pulled up, uh, there's a Cal Access website, which will tell you, give give the your listeners information about the spending on any ballot measure or any candidate campaign. And I just pulled up the most recent um, report on, anybody can just type in Cal Access into their Google Drive, and it's about four hundred million dollars um, on Proposition Twenty Seven. Four hundred million. Yeah. yeah, and there's for both a, sides. Yeah, that's yeah. both sides. Three campaigns. Yeah, yeah. there's that's three campaigns. That's both sides, but that's about four hundred million just on Twenty Seven, mm-hmm. and Twenty Six probably has another several hundred million on that one as well. So between the two, you know, we're up. Well, you're close to a billion five, dollars, right? Yeah. You're about, just yes. about a billion dollars. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, the, that's the, Powerwall money. <laughs> yeah, the, the the yes on 27 side raised about $170 million. They didn't quite spend all of that, but that that accounts for almost half of that. All right. Total. Thank you so much, uh, with Kathy Fairbanks, for the uh, joint yes on 26, no on 27 campaign, and Mary Beth Moylan with the uh, McGeorge School of Law at University of the Pacific, uh, kind of our neutral observer. The yes on 27 people did not get back to us in time. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. CVS and Walgreens are the latest big businesses to agree to pay up to settle lawsuits related to the opioid crisis. The two chains have tentatively reached a deal to pay a combined $10 billion to settle lawsuits brought by states and local governments alleging that they mishandled uh, prescriptions of all these opioid painkillers. Yeah, states and other local governments have filed more than 3,000 lawsuits accusing opioid manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies of downplaying the addiction risk and failing to stop pills from being used illegally. With us is Maria Glover, who is a professor at Georgetown Law, and she is an expert in civil procedure and complex litigation. Maria, thanks for being with us. Yeah, complex indeed. Uh, But here's the question that I think a lot of people are are probably wondering. Who actually gets the estimated $10 billion? Not the people who are families harmed by this, do they? So the idea is to try to structure with the various entities, right? You've got governments, municipalities, cities, uh, towns, first responders within those towns. Some needs in terms of responses to opioid overdose, opioid recovery, opioid rehabilitation, but also a number of differences, right? Los Angeles is a very different community than, say, um, you know, a small town in East Tennessee where I grew up, the opioid crisis hit both areas, but precisely how the money will be used um, in terms of helping people would the way that things have been rolling. Um, and I've, I've done some work on this um, at, at sort of the state and federal level is to start working with the various federal and state and city entities about what their needs are and what evidence-based um, rehabilitation, treatment, uh, municipality help would look like. And they're, you know, in different states and different places going to potentially be boards appointed by the state government and by the city government who work through the fines and approve applications for use of those fines. 
and precisely how they're, they will be used is going to be a question for each and every, you know, state or municipality or city in coordination um, with their government entities. But the idea that's been working for a few years now with the various attorneys is how do we structure these settlements and settlement payouts in ways that help abate the crisis that reach, you know, not just people who have, have suffered a yeah. situation, but also the municipalities that have been responding to the crisis um, for a very long time now. Right. So it kind of sounds like, if I'm understanding you right, this is kind of a trickle-down situation. So is $10 billion enough? I think there is probably not enough money on planet Earth or any other planet in the galaxy to abate the opioid crisis that as as it has proliferated, um, it has just become such an enormous problem. Um, every bit counts, and we have to be very intentional about how that money is used. Um, there are examples from the past in complex litigation where money has been used very helpfully, and there are others like tobacco where it it has not. Um, I think there's there's no way, even if if you were taking out the cost of a life to have that much money, but when you start asking, well, what's the cost of a father? What's the cost of a daughter? What's the cost of a community whose entire industry went under? I don't think there's enough money for that. Um, but but part of what we're trying to reach in these settlements is, is something approximating a level of harm proportionate to what particular uh, defendants may or may not have been responsible for. Under, you, know, you know, Maria, I, I, I think that a lot of people, when they hear about these huge civil settlements, in this case, CVS mm-hmm. and, and Walgreens. And then they also hear uh, that, uh, you know, neither party admits any wrongdoing or any guilt. That's part of the thing. I think a lot of people kind of scratch their heads and they go, really? Wait a minute. They're paying out billions of dollars uh, for this incredible debacle uh, that took many lives all over the country. And yet they don't accept any responsibility or blame. Can you briefly explain to lay people how that is? The, the how of it is 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 a couple of things. Um, one, these huge litigations um, are typically in some ways too big for trial. Um, that that's not how they get resolved. They tend to get resolved through settlements, and there are pros and cons to that. And and one of the cons for some people is that there there isn't a showing of liability. There's more granular, but none. No less important reasons, namely that admissions of liability in any number of contexts means that you void your insurance policies, right? So settlement is a, is a way to preserve everyone's insurance structure to the extent that exists. Um, trials are expensive and time-consuming, and, and again, some of these things are just sort of too big for trial. And one of the trade-offs that has been made in complex litigation, rightly or wrongly, is that settlements often tend to be quite confidential and they don't require the defendant to accept liability as a formal matter. Now, do you get the defendants to the table to settle um, after this many years of litigation without some concern that, that there is responsibility? I don't, I don't think that's the case, but it is pretty normal in, in these big, big, big litigations that are in some ways too big for trial, that for a number of reasons, there's going to be a relatively confidential settlement and there will not be admission of liability. That's part of what gets folks to the table. All right. Thank you so much. Maria Glover, professor at Georgetown Law, expert in civil procedure and complex litigation. You have a dog. If you do, 
then you know it means extra responsibilities. You need to feed it, take care of it when it gets sick, and make sure it's getting attention. Sounds like a lot of people I know. Yes, <laughs> in this business. Yeah. Uh, you also need to make sure that it exercises. Now we're not like the business. No. Uh, usually that just means walk, but a lot of people don't seem to have any time to walk their dog. And that's where Mark Cleary rolls in. He owns Bark and Roll, which is a mobile treadmill service for dogs in the South Bay and much of L.A. County. He's going to show up at your home and put your dog <laughs> on a treadmill. Whether, wait, whether the dog wants it or not? Whether or? the dog wants it or not. I think that's going to be the first question. Yeah. What if the dog... Uh, thank you for joining us, by the way. What What if the dog does not want to get on the treadmill? <laughs> um, thanks for having me, by the way. Um, that that's a, that's a great question. So all the dogs that I've run, um, they all seem to be very excited about it. Um, some of the owners can't say their my name around them. They have to spell it out. Otherwise, the dogs freak out. Uh, they learn what day I'm coming. They see the van pull up. Um, most of them jump right up on the machine. It's, it's pretty hilarious, actually. So, so I'm trying to picture this. So someone gets in touch with you and they say, I, I guess what? Uh, I don't have time to walk my dog and my dog is getting like really like fat, uh, needs to exercise. So you you roll up to their home and you what? You carry in like a, a small treadmill? Um, so I have um, very, very different reasons why um, some people um, are able to walk their dog and give their dog plenty of exercise, but it's just not enough for them. Uh, some people uh, can't do what they want with their dog because of maybe like coyote issues that they have around their, their where they live. Um, some people aren't physically able to walk their dog or, or give them enough energy. Now, this doesn't replace walking the dog by no means. Um, this is an, an added exercise. It's going to make their heart stronger. Um, there, there's machines inside of my van. So I pull up in the van. Um, there's two treadmills. They don't have motors. That's the key. So the dog goes at the speed that they want to. Do you do any vacation service? Like when somebody goes on vacation, they're gone for a week or two. Uh, do you go by and you've got access to get the dog and, and run them on the treadmill? Um, we've, you know, we've not done that yet. I, I would like to um, link up with some uh, places that that may be like board animals to where well then charles and i doing... get a cut of that money because uh, we gave you the idea <laughs> yeah that's a good idea <laughs> we're, we're actually talking about uh ideas mark where did this idea come from um you know actually i i, I first of all i love dogs and um i used to foster them years ago and um really got involved into that and volunteered with the um the shelter and did a lot with them and always wanted to figure out how I could make a career out of working with dogs. Um, and, you know, I just saw someone else doing it and in another part of the country that um, is more for like heat reasons that they're doing it and just thought it was a great idea and let me get back working with dogs. I've got another idea to shoot at you and see if you like it. Uh, you can think about expanding to cats. And what you can do is you can roll up in your van with a treadmill, and the cat can be exercised by ignoring you. But you're asking that because you have cats, right? I have cats, ah, and, okay. and but sometimes they need that extra ability to ignore someone. So I was thinking if you drive up and take all this trouble to open the door of the van, and the cat could just turn the head away, and that way the cat gets the exercise it needs. <laughs> they'll be, they'll yeah. be pleased with that. <laughs> so so what, what what roughly does this cost? Um, most of the introductory sessions are $45. And then um, once we, once we um, you know, determine how often that they want to go and, you know, where they live and what they're trying to do with it, we can 
uh, set up more of a package price for them. But if, I'm curious, though, if you've had people, clients who, you know, they try to do this instead of walking their dog. I mean, did you ever have to say to somebody, you know, you can't really like do this every day. You have to actually occasionally really walk your dog. Um, you know, I think I think most people do do know that, um, you know, and, and if the, if they don't, I would, of course, tell them that um, the the walk is really for, you know, enrichment, bonding. Um, they get to smell stuff. Uh, this is making their heart stronger, making their back hips, um, you know, not fail out when they get older, you know, make them live longer. They don't live long enough. So, you know, try to make them live a little longer. Well, the first time you, you uh, run the treadmill for a certain dog, the first time the dog runs it, uh, does it take a while for them to warm up to the idea or do they take right to it? It's pretty funny, actually. Some are, they're all different. Um, some jump right on and, and they just go like they knew what they were supposed to do. And uh, some take a whole 30 minute session, sometimes into the second session and to get used to it. So um, I just ran a dog um, before this talking to you, uh, the third session that we've we've done. And, and finally, she's got a comfort level. She's standing up proud and you know, tails wagging the whole time. And it's great to see. And again, so so these are not motorized like like people would go on. It's essentially the dog powering the machine, right? Correct. Yeah, we don't like the motor, um, the the motor treadmills. Uh, I don't. Maybe for rehabilitation and stuff, they might use them for. Before we're doing that, I mean, my my dogs that are running with me, they'll go from two, three, four miles per hour. I mean, I just had one running ten, eleven miles per hour, but by the second half of the workout, they ten miles per hour went down to six or seven miles per hour. So if you've got a motor on that, you know they can't tell you they want to slow down. Um, so without the motor, they can do whatever whatever they want when the dogs are finished do they wipe down the treadmill i wish i, I, I haven't figured out how to train that yet if anyone knows they can reach out to me well that sounds like a great idea uh mark uh, thank you so much for joining us good luck uh as you uh grow your business there are you thinking about expanding uh, one of these days and and having a service where you have other people working for you I, I would love to. I'm seeing a bunch of website traffic down in Orange County, which is really close and not even that far out. So as the, we see the need discover, um, yeah, I would like to add some vans into the area and, and grow up and get all, all the dogs healthy and living longer. All right. Thank you very much. Mark Thanks Cleary joining us on uh, KNX in Death today. And uh, Charles, what do you think? What if we go into this business, but not dogs? We do people. Uh, or, you know, I was looking at something on Twitter before. It was a video of, uh, like, little giraffes that were trying to learn how to walk. And I thought, mm -hmm. you know, that wouldn't be a bad a treadmill for baby giraffes. I mean, you'd have to have a big Yes, roof I was going to say you have next. to have a really tall van. Yeah, but right. otherwise, I mean, I can see that. Yeah, okay. All right, something yeah. to look into. Put my neck out on it. <sighs> That's KX in depth for today. Bum, bum. We're going to do another one tomorrow. <laughs>